Hey, good morning. And now we are at lesson 11. We're wrapping up a couple more lessons to go. Uh, this lesson is entitled Messiah's Kingdom. It's part one. Um, it's going to be a little different than our other lessons. Um, we are still going to be looking at passages from Isaiah, but we're going to spend some time looking outside of that. Um, it is probably, as we look at Isaiah, it's probably one of the richest books in the Bible regarding the Messianic Kingdom. Uh, from the start to the finish, it contains a, a, just a multitude of references to the Kingdom. So in this lesson, and in Lesson 12 next week, we will explore some of the references and we will conduct more of a systematic study of this subject of the Messianic Kingdom uh, rather than just taking apart one passage in, in Isaiah. We're going to be looking at across the Bible to see what it says. Now, this lesson is going to focus on the physical aspects of the Messianic Kingdom. Uh, while the next lesson is going to focus more on the spiritual aspects. Now there are, the first thing I think we need to recognize are some terms. Uh, there are two interchangeable terms that describes Christ's coming kingdom. Uh, the messianic kingdom and the millennial kingdom. Uh, the word messianic reflects that of the Messiah who will rule this kingdom. Uh, the word millennial uh, comes uh, from the duration of the kingdom. The word millennium comes from the Latin word mil, um, which literally means 1,000, uh, and we're referring to that of years. Uh, uh, considering uh, the reference in, Je in Revelation uh, 20, uh, 2 through 7, that talks about the time that Christ will reign um, and that Satan will be bound up for a thousand years. I think the other thing that we need to define is that this lesson is going to take a uh, premenial uh, position. Uh, it's a position that our church, I think, holds. I know I've been a Baptist for a long time, and, and uh, it's historically a, le a position they've held as well. Uh, there are other uh, theological interpretation, um, but the issue is really at when Christ will return uh, and how it will occur in relation to the millennium and whether the millennium is a, a literal earthly kingdom or a spiritual lane. So the, the three terms that we've got here is premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Uh, premillennial or premillennialism uh, teaches that Christ is going to return before the millennium, uh, at the end of the, uh, the seven years after the rapture, he will return to earth with the elect uh, to establish an earthly kingdom. Uh, and he will rule out of Jerusalem, fulfilling the provinces and the covenants that were made with Israel. 
He will judge the wicked, and the righteous will enter his kingdom. And those who enter the kingdom will have physical bodies, and life will continue much as before. But the quality of life will be the highest it has ever been since the fall of man. The second opposing view is post-millennialism. And the post-millennial is that the position is that the gospel uh, will overcome all evil and that the world will gradually be getting better and better and better until finally this golden age occurs and believers will live godly lives and win others to Christ until the entire world is converted and eventually bring in this kingdom and Christ will return to earth after this age of peace thus they use the word post uh, to judge the dead and initiate the eternal state and the one of the challenges I have with the post millennials and it's just that is that when you look at world conditions as they have been over the past centuries I just in spite of, of evangelism and in spite of everything we're doing I don't see the world getting better and better and better. We just seem to be spiraling downward and downward and downward. All millennials um, maintain that there is not going to be a millennium. Uh, that's where ah uh, means without. Uh, without a millennium. Uh, strictly speaking, they uh, don't see the millennial as a literal one. Uh, they believe that Christ's reign is occurring now in the believer's heart. And essentially this view denies both um, the distinction between Israel and the church and the literal interpretation of prophecy. It, uh, it has a tendency to spiritualize um, the prophecies concerning Israel's future and applies them to the church. And when Christ does return to earth, all millennials believe it will be to establish the eternal state. Um, the, ironically, this position holds that Satan is presently bound. Um, and we find that there is a, a fair number of Christians today who believe in this, that Satan you know, is taken care of and all millennials are, are, are what this is. Now, I, I want to just ask a question to kind of think about. Why is spiritualizing Scripture a dangerous practice? And I think one of the things that we have when we spiritualize uh, Scripture on that um, is that, uh, um, you know, when we're dealing with that as, a, as an issue, you know, when we... Um, Spiritualized scripture, we in essence are, are coming up with or saying that we uh, have claim over the authority of scripture. And then any scripture that can be spiritualized can be then altered to meet our interpretations. So we're going to come back and, and look at, as the lesson outlines, a short defense of the premillennial position, if you haven't ever considered it. And then we'll get into uh, some more of the study um, of the, the passages that uh, we're going to be looking at in this lesson.
Okay, so I said we we're going to come back and look at the defensive premillennial position. And I think the strongest support or strongest defense of this position is it's based on literal interpretation of Scripture, just the simplest understanding of what Scripture is saying. I think a Bible interpreter should treat prophecy no differently. Uh, uh, we should interpret the material in the manner intended by God. Now, the first thing I want to look at is that there is um, some covenants. Covenants are relationships, uh, agreements between God and uh, his people. And if we look at the uncomplicated presentation of the covenants, um, we find that they are foundational to the prophecy seen in Isaiah. Uh, these covenants are written in pretty plain words and therefore detain, uh, determine or uh, demand uh, a uh, literal interpretation. Now the first covenant is the uh, uh, covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and we see as we get into studying this covenant, we find that uh, there are three elements to the covenant. Uh, the promise of a seed or a descendants, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the promise of land, uh, Israel, which one day will border from Egypt to the Euphrates River, and a blessing to all people, Christ. Now, um, to give you an opportunity to go there, we're going to read one passage out of Genesis uh, 1 through 3, but I also encourage you to take some time and jot down Genesis 13, 14 through 17, and Genesis 17, 2 through 6. Um, these passages in Genesis, or the, the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant, are foundational to Isaiah and the promises we see for the Millennial Kingdom. And those I'm making reference to come in a lot of different places, so take some time and look these up as well. Isaiah 10, 21 and 22. Isaiah 19, 25. Isaiah 43, 1 and Isaiah 65, verses 8 and 9. Now I'm going to grab my Bible, and we're going to read uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So if you want to take it a moment and find that passage, and then uh, start the uh, uh, podcast back up, we'll be right back. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be 
blessed. Now, I guess a question I want to ask to think about is what, if anything, in that passage is complicated or mysterious about his covenant, his promise. Um, the, the passage is just pretty straightforward. Um, he says, go to a land I'm going to give you, and uh, I'm going to make your name great, and, um, and I'm going to extend your land, and I'm going to uh, make a blessing to all the peoples of the earth from your people. It's not. It, 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 the interpretation of this covenant is pretty straightforward. Now, the second covenant that I want to talk about is the Davidic covenant. Um, and that is the covenant in which God promises that one of David's seeds or descendants will occupy Israel's throne forever. And we see that in Second Samuel uh, 7 through 12. And that is the promise that's behind the references that Isaiah has in 11, 1 and 2, and 55, 3 and 11. Now there's one last um, covenant that I want to discuss for just a moment, and that is the Palestinian covenant. Now, um, this is a covenant uh, that uh, guarantees the land to Israel. Now, we find it back in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 through 10. Um, and it's the basis of Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, and Isaiah 65, 9. Now, we have to understand, we call it the Palestinian covenant, but at the time that the covenant was given, uh, Palestine didn't exist. Um, Israel had been wandering in the desert. Uh, they were getting ready to enter the promised land here in uh, Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, God has promised them the land. Um, but uh, we refer to it as the Palestinian covenant because the land that he promises we know now uh, at the time period that Bible scholars were studying was Palestine. And so it's called the Palestinian Covenant. Um, now, from Israel's perspective, there is one next covenant that God has not made yet, and that is the new covenant with Israel. Uh, this covenant is regarding the regeneration of the people, and that we see in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. And that's what is the uh, covenant that is behind uh, Isaiah's prophecies of 11, 9, and 35, 10. As you see, we're doing a lot of, of looking at overviews today. One of the things that you see in all of these three covenants is um, going back, are they are unconditional. Uh, God gave the Abrahamic, uh, the Davidic, and the Palestinian covenants unconditionally. They are binding. 
Uh, God has never rescinded them, and he will see to it that they will happen so that his word finds fulfillment. God always finds a way to fulfill his words in the terms that he gave it. Now, when I talk about it being um, a unconditional covenant, you notice as we go back to that covenant in uh, Genesis, starting, um, he says, go to the land, I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and I will bless you, uh, bless those who uh, bless you and curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is nothing Abraham has to do. It has all been um, continually on God. God has given this unconditionally, um, and uh, as we look through all of these promises, uh, we we do need to also see that some of them have happened, such as the uh, all in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the blessing that comes from uh, the Messiah or Jesus Christ. But there are also unfulfilled promises. And, uh, you know, if you said, well, which parts of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and Palestinian and the New Covenants has God not fulfilled yet? Um, I think what we could do on that one is, is basically realize that Israel has never possessed all the land uh, that was promised. The Messiah has not yet uh, reigned on the throne of David. Jesus came the first time, but in his second coming, he is going to reign. Israel, as a nation, has not enjoyed all the benefits of the new covenant uh, promised in Jeremiah. So there are some future promises that still are going to come to pass. Um, we're going to continue to follow that God intends to uh, keep his promises as he has been um, you know and I think one of the things that we need to to ask ourselves is what would life be like if we couldn't count on God to keep his promises uh, that we find in in his word um, you know I think life would uh, be unsure at best if we knew that we couldn't count on God to keep his promises but we do see in in um, the Bible, time after time after time, God promises, God um, prophesies that this is going to happen, and then it happens. And so the times he hasn't yet fulfilled his promises, we know that that will come true. We just are going to wait for it to happen. So this is one of the reasons that we're, if I'm using this as a defense, is that we're holding a plea pre-millennial position that makes distinctions between Israel and the church and reserves for Israel God's uh, clear promises to a nation. Um, we're going to return here in just a second and we're going to start looking at uh, the regathering of Israel, the returning Jews, the, the royal city, uh, the restored kingdom, and we'll continue on after that. So let's look. 
one of the things during the millennium that we're going to see is that Israel again will be the center of God's program, uh, God's attention. Uh, the Jews are going to occupy the land promised to the seed of Abraham. Uh, we know that uh, over time the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world. Uh, the world's population, I think last I looked, said about 14 million Jewish people. Uh, they live, I think more Jews live in the United States than in any other country. Uh, Tel Aviv, I think in Israel, is the, the city with the largest Jewish population in Israel. Uh, the second largest Jewish population is found in New York City. But uh, one day they're going to return to Israel, uh, to the land promised uh, to Abraham. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to go look at this land uh, that was promised to him in Genesis. Uh, we're looking at Genesis 15, uh, verse 18, and it says... And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now a question I would ask is, uh, has uh, Israel ever possessed all of this land uh, yet? Uh, and the answer is no. But uh, you will see that, uh, that God is going to gather them together, uh, you know, almost as an object of his love. And, and here I'm seeing in Isaiah this, this passage, and if you want to turn with me, we're in Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7. And it says, Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, for whom I have created for my glory, for whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You see in this passage, God is talking about objects of his love. Now you might ask, Mike, what do you mean? the the object of his love what 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 do you see in this well there's a couple things that i see in there um he's referring to offspring uh but he also calls them sons and daughters and it's talking from a, from a fatherly position not just one limited to your creation he talks who i've made but more special a relationship a father to a child relationship um, after they've been gathered together we will see also a, a continuation here um, that the messiah will reign on the throne of david one of the next promises the promises of to david now you will see that um, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Um, now his rule is described as being quite severe, and it says his, uh, he shall uh, strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. 
Now, that sounds pretty severe to me. Um, but it will be righteous as well. Behold uh, the king who will reign in righteousness. That's Isaiah 32, 1. Uh, God is going to fulfill his promises uh, to David that one of his offspring is going to sit on the throne that we'd looked at way back at, before when we talked about in 2 Samuel 7 through 12, or 7, not through 12, but chapter 7, verse 12. Um, Israel's greatness will um, exceed anything she has known before. And you will see that in Isaiah, if you want to take the moment to look up Isaiah chapter 60 and just read that entire chapter. Uh, Israel's position is going to be one of honor. Uh, other nations um, will enjoy God's blessings as well. And we see that in uh, Isaiah uh, 19, 24 through 25. Now, not only will Israel be the center of God's spotlight, but Jerusalem will be the center of the world's interest and worship. And if you will let me pause this for just a second, we're going to turn some pages and go to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Okay, so Isaiah 2, 2, and 3, uh, we're going to be looking at Jerusalem and its place in the center of God's spotlight. Um, so let's look at that. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord uh, will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Now let's take a second. The mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the Jerusalem is built on, uh, um, I think for those in Colorado, they wouldn't call it a mountain, uh, a rather large hill, uh, an elevated area, but uh, it does say all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that is Jerusalem that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his path, and the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we, we do see that um, not only uh, does there is a regathering of Israel from their, their spread across the entire earth, but there is a regal city that is going to be in the center of the the Jewish nation, which is Jerusalem. Ezekiel spends quite a bit of time talking about the Millennial Temple in Jerusalem and the worship that's taking place there. And that is Ezekiel 40 through 60. Uh, I'm sorry, 40 through 46. That's seven chapters. Uh, Jerusalem will be glorif uh, glorious city. Uh, we will also see that in Isaiah. Uh, 52, the first 12 verses, um, Isaiah 60, 14 through 21, and uh, Isaiah 61, verse 3. 
God has got a special place for it and will protect it and the nation. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 33, uh, 20 through 24. Now, another thing that we're going to look at is the reconstruction of the wasted places. And let me get another passage brought up and we'll be back with you here in just a second. During the, the tribulation, the, the period prior to the uh, millennium, uh, there are going to be many battles taking place in Israel, and the land is going to be devastated. But God is going to reclaim the land and make it ready for habitation. Um, these, uh, there's a passage in Isaiah uh, 49.19 is talking about these ravaged and desolated places. And it says, For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now you are too cramped for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you will be far away. Uh, and then uh, we're going to ask is, let's look at Isaiah 65.21 and 22 and uh, see what that says about this rebuilding uh, or the reconstruction of Israel. So 65, 21, and 22 says, They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Um, so what is it talking about? The, is, the reconstruction is that it's coming back um, and they'll never have to fear that someone else is going to take it away from them. Their houses will not be taken by someone else and their gardens and the produce of their hands is not going to be eaten by someone else. Um, we also find that during the millennium there is going to be a population explosion. Um, because there is no war, only peace, prosperity, and plenty of food. Um, we find that there is a promise that God sees uh, in 26.15. In Isaiah, he says that you are increasing the nation, and you've increased the nation. Uh, you will be glorified. Um, you have you know, brought it to the place it is today. And uh, we also find a uh, promise that people are going to live uh, much older than they do now. And we see that in Isaiah 65, uh, verse 20, just one verse ahead of where we are uh, to right now. Let me get, oops, wrong passage. 65, verse 20. Uh, I, thought, I thought that was kind of neat. No longer will they be in an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who doesn't live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred, and one who does not eat reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. So there is an idea that uh, the, the people are going to live to healthy old lives during this uh, time period of this promise. 
the conditions are going to be so ideal that this increase in population and the world will be able to sustain it. Um, we will also look here as the rejuvenation of the desert. Israel um, hasn't always been as it is today. The area around the Dead Sea today is quite desolate. Um, I've never been, but I've talked to people and seen pictures of it. But if you think of the Bible, it says that Lot chose the area because it was so verdant, green, and well-watered. Uh, it was like the Garden of the Lord. And that's back in the book of Genesis 13, verse 10. This garden-like plain that was once the site of several large cities. But God warned his people that if they disobeyed them, he would discipline them by withholding the rain. And a fact that's very evident today. Uh, nevertheless, the potential for productivity still exists, locked away within that soil. So, one day the rains are going to return. Um, Isaiah 30, 23 promises that uh, he gives rain back to the descendants. And out of that, there will come streams in the desert, and the the parched ground is going to be a pool and the thirsty land springs forth water and in the area of the habitation of the jackals um, where they lay shall be grass reeds and rushes the the the, the uh, plant material uh, that lives in in lush and verdant area this increased rainfall that's going to come is going to cause an agricultural boom there are references uh, that speak of the bounty of the harvest during the Messianic Kingdom. Um, they, we see that in, um, I'll just give you a bunch to look up, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, also uh, 29, 17, and 53, I'm sorry, 51, uh, 3. And you'll find that each of the harvests in, uh, increase a bumper crop uh, that uh, we will find that uh, um, this bumper crop um, I think that's the verse I wanted to look at uh, let me get a give me just a second to, to change back and I'll go grab that verse and I'll be right with you There, I found it. Okay, you know, we also, we find that if you've ever gardened, you know one of the problems we have with gardens are weeds. And in uh, Isaiah 55, 13, we talk about that no longer weeds going to be a problem. Where weeds once exist, uh, lush, beautiful flowers are going to appear. But the verse I was I was looking for on my notes was Amos 9:13. So if we go to Amos 9, I know it's not Isaiah, but it's another promise of what these final days are going to be like. And Amos talks about the restoration of Israel also, and in 13, um, 
through 15, we see, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. I mean, you think about that, that the one who is planting is going to overtake the one who is harvesting. He is so slow in harvesting uh, because of the harvest is so great that he has overtaken him. And the treader of grapes will overtake the one who sows the seed when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore from the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine, and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them in their land, and they will not be again rooted from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So, Amos also is following the same passage. You know, the the potential is evident. Where water is in the desert, there is irrigation. And the desert has already bloomed and has produced much food. But this current increase in agriculture in the desert is going to be nothing compared to what the land will see when Christ comes to rule. And then I think the last thing that I want to... Uh, look at is the the change in the animal world during the the messianic kingdom when adam sinned let's go back to the beginning in genesis when adam sinned curse fell on man on the earth and the animals and god cursed the serpent who was the instrument of satan and the representative of the animal kingdom and we see that in genesis 3:14 and 15 all the other animals suffered under that curse. In the original creation, man and beast both were um, vegetarian or herbivorous. Not carnivorous, herbivorous. Yes, they ate, they ate plants. We'll leave it at that. Genesis 29 through 30. As a result of the fall, certain animals became carnivorous and ferocious. And after the flood, man, too, became a meat-eater. But in Isaiah, um, a, Isaiah 11, let's get my eye on the verse. I believe it's verse 6. So let's go there. No, not Amos. Let's go to Isaiah. It was in Amos. So let's go to Isaiah 11. Verse 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse 8, The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. I think you find intriguing as it talks about the lion eating straw, um, that these notorious um, uh, predators and prey are laying down together, um, and that children and... Um, poisonous reptiles um, can play together. I think that's, to me, one of the, the, the intriguing things about this change in wildlife. 
during the millennial um, period, conditions that existed in Eden will return. Peace is going to exist in the animal kingdom. No longer you will see will there be a predator-prey relationship. The cow, the bear, the leopard, um, the goat, wolves and lambs are going to live together in harmony. They are not going to be afraid of one another. Um, ferocious animals will no longer be a to, threat to man. It says even a little child could lead them uh, to, to take them around. And furthermore, the, the child can play with the, the, the snakes, um, and they will pose no threat to man. Uh, but I think it's also interesting to see in uh, Isaiah 65, uh, verse 25, let me get that brought up here. Um, on my Bible, 65, 25. Uh, it is talking, it says, the wolf and the lamb will gaze, graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. Now you remember in Genesis, um, I think it's significant that the serpent will continue in its state of curse. Um, it says dust will be the serpent's food. Um, I think there, many people will will believe that the serpent probably originally walked, was upright, because during its initial curse, it said it will crawl on its bare belly and eat dust. Um, but uh, and that was part of its its uh, its curse uh, because of its part in the fall of man. But you find that the serpent never returns to its original status. Uh, we see that Isaiah says that uh, the serpent will continue to have dust as its food. Um, during the Messianic Kingdom, uh, all creation will be restored to the conditions prior to the fall. Redemption of nature is coupled with the final redemption or the final glorification of believers. These changes, we're putting them together so you understand, all occur not because of some genetic thing, not because of just time getting better and better. Uh, this occurs because the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. Um, now some other changes occur when Christ institutes the eternal state um, at the conclusion of the millennial the curse is going to be completely removed and that we can see in Genesis or Revelation 21 1 and 22 3 God it will continue to reign throughout the eternal state but until that time we need to continue to study scriptures and hold to the truths it teaches we need to realize that the Word of God assures us of our salvation. He assures us of God's future work, which is part of our salvation. Um, and we, in closing, I just want to ask one final question for you to consider. And I thought this was important. And this is going to tie in not to the, this lesson, but the last lesson. 
We understand as believers that only those who receive Christ as their Savior are going to enter into Christ's millennial kingdom. Okay. Now the question is to you, who do you know who is currently not on the list of the invited guests? In other words, he or she is not saved. Now, remembering as we've looked at the change of the millennia, it's going to far outshine any time in history of the world. So I'm just encouraging you to not be shy in, shall we say, handing out invitations to the kingdom by the way of witnessing. So as we continue looking at Isaiah, we've got a couple more lessons. I want you to just, in this time that we're going through, uh, with maybe limited access, but maybe through electronic media or a phone or just someone that you meet walking um, here in Garden or in the communities, um, give them an invitation to God's millennial kingdom. Encourage them to be part of it. Uh, we will see you next week uh, as we continue. Next week, we're going to be focusing on the Millennial Kingdom again, focusing on the spiritual changes. It's been a blessing to be with you guys. Um, I know that there will be a day that we can meet together again. But until then, we're going to continue to provide um, some level of, of Bible teaching that you can have access to. Uh, I pray that uh, you're finding some benefit from it. I know I'm learning from it every time I teach. So, guys, have a great day, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.